0: Love.
1: Can you guys feel it in the air? It's uh, March 5th, 2021 and welcome to the Tory says show. There is a lot that is happening, a lot that happened yesterday actually, unseen yet. Yet, I have received tons and tons of phone calls from people that have seen what is happening, some on the defensive, some rejoicing. Now, tell us, Tori, what is it? Well, you have to see it. But, but, we can start talking about it. I was going to talk about it earlier, but I thought I'd talk about it later. Uh, You know, the one thing that we noticed is that um, our president uh, denounced... Uh, you know, organizations like the WHO, uh, kept the UN on check for their activities and actions, uh, pushed really, really hard, uh, to ensure that things, uh, were monitored. And yet we feel, well, we're being told. And we are being reprogrammed to believe that what they say is true and that what what is happening is false and what they say is happening is true. This is how the devil works. This is how evil works. It confuses you to not understand what is really happening. The more you're confused, the more he wins. That's the way it is. And today we're going to talk about a few things. We're going to talk about... um, how things are happening. And we're also going to touch base on this. Uh, these things. These things from far, far away. And far, far away is, you know, it depends how you see it. Do you see it as something as a distance, as a time distance, or are they one in the same? So before we get into it, Okay, before we get into it, I want us to remember that it's March Madness. Hey, anybody fill their brackets up? I've already got my finals. <laughs> it's Brennan and Clapper against America. So fill up those brackets. Make sure <coughs> make sure you fill them in. Excuse me. And today, uh, like I said, we're going to talk about many things. Some of them are called the waves of probability. How alternate timelines exist by way of quantum explanation, and um, we're also going to look at cubism. Yeah, that's Q B I S M. Uh, and um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna start to take a grasp on the many worlds approach uh, through quantum. So uh, it's important to know this as we visit uh, areas of space we don't like to talk about, uh, areas of history or lore or myth or whatever, uh, that nobody wants to talk about. And how does this fit in? Well, (laughs) there's a method to it, right? Because as you can see, everything we do talk about kind of fits in, even though it's not really fitting in at the time. Uh, These vaccines, these uh, notions, these lawsuits, Uh, didn't I say that the way we're going to find election fraud is by looking at states and cities and races that were not being contested? Damn. Damn. Kind of looks like that's relevant now. So I want us to look from Chinese eyes (laughs) what the Chinese consider the five eyes. I think it's important that we see what the Chinese consider five eyes, one of the biggest atrocities to mankind. Well, because sovereignty is kicked in the tush with it. Look at this really, listen to this really short report.
2: Five eyes is an alliance comprising Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom and the United States for joint cooperation in signals intelligence. The origins of the club dates back to the Second World War. Britain and the US cooperated with radio transmitters to intercept enemy exchanges. This cooperation continued after the war, and the alliance expanded to five by 1956. As communications technology developed dramatically, their activities evolved. It expanded to human intelligence, counter-espionage, spatial intelligence, and financial and transportation security cooperation. Professor Shenyi from Fudan University has revealed in a recently published article that the Five Eyes have been exchanging classified information on China's foreign activities. Mm. He says the U.S. is mainly responsible for the coordination of Chinese investment intelligence services and Australia has committed to defending against China's political influence. Whistleblower Edward Snowden once described the Alliance as a supranational intelligence organization that doesn't answer to the known laws of its own countries. Timothy Ulrich, CGTN.
1: And uh, that is a very concise report, but you know what's omitted from it? You saw the dates. We've been talking about this, 1948. I mean, Nazis, Nazis, oh my gosh, is that coming into focus now? And you guys are so well-versed. The more rubbish, the more congestion, the more misinformation that is out there. You're like, wait, stop, stop. I know history. Stop. I'm not, I I don't care to list, stop with your misinformation, stop with your decode, stop. I know history. I'm good. Thanks. Because this is all going to be coming out. All of it is going to be coming out in full force and people are going to be like, wait a minute, how did this even happen? How did we even miss this? Mom, because there are many things that you need when you are speaking, you know, a spy pact created by five nations, you know what nation you need to focus on? Focus on Australia. Think why Australia. Think why was it that Australia was put on a spotlight when our president first came into office. Think why did they spy on that call? We already knew that they were going to leak calls. I mean, are we leaking any calls from Biden? Have we asked for any calls from Biden? Are we looking into any calls from Biden? But for some reason, Australia was leaked. Why Australia? I want you to think, what is the importance of the Aussies who have been kicked out and not allowed to use facebook anymore what is this obsession with australia well i did tell you that New zealand right and i've even written this in an article is the where is where you can go to hack oh no access legally right legally per se legally per the five eyes legally what they allow if you have a clearance and you're on the system guess what you go to new zealand you can access with like admin admin that's how easy it is to access any information across the five nations the five without logging in So if I was in England and I wanted to access intelligence information that was housed in the United States or Canada or Australia or New Zealand, it would log me. It would take a picture of me. It would take my biometrics and then I would access. But in New Zealand, it's like, there it is. Here's the terminal access away there is no documentation of who accesses thing. So now what you have to think of is New Zealand uh, was a place that all of the Democrats of the previous corrupt impeach 44 administration were traveling to while President Trump was being fought from the minute he got into office. They were all going to New Zealand. A bunch of them were going, even Comey, right? Flirting with the idea filed for New Zealand citizenship. So that's number one. But why Australia? Why did they leak the Australian call out of all? And now Australia has been banned by Facebook. You're not allowed to have Facebook if you're in Australia. So I want you to think about that. Why Australia and why did they access everything from New Zealand? Well, you know, that's where they can go in and nobody takes any, you know, uh, any record of who accesses. So fair enough. But then why their neighbor, Australia? What's so, um, because, you know, New Zealand and Australia and Canada are controlled by the same entity. So it's not really five eyes, is it? It's like two eyes. It's the crown in America. Let's be straight. All right. Let's be straight. Let's just riddle it down to the hardcore facts. Crown, United States of America. Makes you think, could it be just one eyes anyway? Think. Could it be just one eyes anyway? I mean, these one eyes, (laughs) nobody told you, you know, who got vaccinated first for COVID? Do you know who got vaccinated first for COVID? Do you know? Gorillas. Let's go back to how it all started. Fucking Harambe. That's what's up. So gorillas have been getting vaccinated for COVID-19. Are you understanding where they're going with this? Are you understanding animals being vaccinated five eyes supposedly the Chinese say have been spying on them <laughs> What if what if this is just a huge what if 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 what if? What if. Something was up with the Facebook servers in Australia that can give access to people to some information. Mm. What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? Some of the servers in Australia were actually shared with the who. What if, what if, what if? Who, Australia, gorillas. What? Do you know where the first gorilla was vaccinated for COVID? 2019 in Australia, first gorilla ever vaccinated for COVID-19 before you knew about COVID-19 before it was a pandemic COVID-19 and that was in Australia, COVID-19. So now trend is, is that, um, gorillas are actually being now vaccinated in, um, uh, the United States too now, wait, two years later, shit. Sounds super legit. Sounds like nothing to see here. I just gave you that because it'll come into focus soon. There's no need. I wanted you to understand. Damn, that's right. Australian Prime Minister call what Trump was leaked. All these clowns had traveled to New Zealand and also applied for citizenship. Uh, New Zealand is the only place you can access intelligence information without logging in. Who was accessing what? Australia was thrown under the bus. Australia had the first guerrilla... Um, vaccinated for COVID-19 before everybody knew about COVID-19 in 2019 and um, that was done in Australia and Facebook has banned Australia. Good. Check. Just remember those facts. So that way as the disinformation and misinformation and actual information come in, you can parse it through with your gut. All you need is the foundations. Now, now let's move on. I want us to just talk a little bit about what's going on in our um, Congress. And what was interesting is that there is a Congresswoman who spoke up against the George Floyd bill. Oh, and by the way, remember, all of this stuff started with Harambe. And you're going to be like, what? Harambe was a big deal. You may have not realized it but it'll come full circle pretty quickly uh, this spring. You'll understand what Harambe really was. All right, so here we go. Are you ready? Let's find out what is going on with this George Floyd bill.
3: Today, the House of Representatives actually canceled today's session and the Senate may be forced to do the same. There are worries about more violence from protesters there. Let's check in with our national correspondent, Logan Raddick on Capitol Hill, right at the Capitol. He had the latest, Logan.
4: Hey, good afternoon. The House of Representatives canceled its session today following a warning from the Capitol Police and other intelligence agencies that a quote identified militia group was presenting a threat today here on Capitol Hill. But ever since the riot on January 6th, the security has been incredibly tight here. And as you can see behind me, there's a wall in front of the Capitol building. And right now we're also inside a wall surrounding the Capitol complex. It's about as secure as it can possibly get. The Capitol complex remains one of the most tightly guarded locations in the country after it was overrun by rioters just under two months ago. There's fencing surrounding the entire complex with office buildings walled off with additional barriers inside the main fence protecting the Capitol building and the Supreme Court. Along with the 12-foot fence topped with razor wire, multiple armed National Guardsmen and police officers are stationed at every checkpoint. And then to get inside the building, you have to pass more officers, show your credentials, and get through a metal detector. Now, while the House won't be meeting today, it already approved a version of the coronavirus relief bill.
1: Before we get to that, what happened yesterday with them canceling their session was a success. I want you to think why Pelosi, Hoyer, and all of them say, well, Q s- said, but Q hasn't posted, but Q said something's happening on more, but, but, but Q hasn't posted, but Q said, wait, 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 wait. I thought QAnon- Q was a conspiracy, conspiracy theory. I-, I thought you guys already knew who Q was because you arrested some dude, right? I thought you already knew everything. I mean, you even got the contractors in there that were supposedly monitoring the boards when they were working for you. So if you knew, right, if you knew who Q is, even if you thought it was... um The president, for example, because there's a lot of people saying that. Or if you thought it was JFK Jr., who is dead, by the way. And, you know, whoever you thought, if you know your enemy, right, then you, right? have no qualms and feel no threat. So with a small little group where they couldn't get in, they were built like juggernauts, right? In a fort like no other. There was no way anyone was going to slide in. Why are they so scared of something that's just a conspiracy theory? Ah, Because they know just how powerless they are. About powerless against what? See they are worried. Why? When do you fear something? The only time you fear something is two things. One, if you know your enemy and you know what they're capable of, right? Or two, when you have no idea what you are up against. So what you have to think is which... Is it that terrifies them that they know exactly how powerful whatever is, or is it that they don't know? That's a question you should think to yourself because they're the ones that, um, How is it said? It seems like Pelosi and Hoyer are QAnon believers. First of all, there's no such thing as QAnon. It's Q and then the anonymous people that follow or listen or decode or assist or corroborate or share information about Q because there's like so many different. Everybody just calls themselves an Anon. Depends. Anon means I'm just an anonymous something. Think about it. They're being called out that they believe in Q, which tells you what? They either fear that what they're up against or that they still don't know what they're up against. I mean, that's what's up.
4: Members will likely have to vote again if the Senate approves changes in the coming days. Florida Congressman Matt Gates and his Republican colleagues say this bill barely targets coronavirus related items. And it's a total joke. It does almost anything except respond to the coronavirus. It spends hundreds of millions of dollars with globalist organizations It even spends money here at home on Native American language preservation. I guess those could be useful things, but they don't belong in the coronavirus response and the whole deal is they're trying to pass these bills so that they can subsidize the pathology of lockdowns there is no subsidy that is better than freedom for our people that's what we hope are proven in Florida the bill as passed by the house includes $1400 direct payments to most Americans plus $400 a week in unemployment benefits while expanding the child tax credit but they may have to vote again if the senate makes changes to the legislation which could very well happen. Oklahoma Senator James Lankford says nobody has been able to read the proposed bill thoroughly and that he will join 13 Republican colleagues in forcing the Senate clerks to read it aloud on the Senate
3: floor. Then it's gone through radical changes on the Senate side. We we hear it has at least, they wanted to drop a text that no one has seen on either side of the aisle, begin debate in amending immediately and try to get it passed before anyone can see it. We're slowing it down, thanks to Ron Johnson for that. Uh, to be able to go through the process and say let's give this thing some daylight and see if that'll have some effect
4: senate republican whip john thune of south dakota says it could take about 10 hours to read the entire bill on the floor and there's another controversial measure that just passed through the house last night it's called hr1 also known as the for the people act and it would automatically register people to vote as well as limit states authorities to remove people From voter rolls. Now, as for the security here on Capitol Hill, we know the House is not in session. Some representatives are still in their offices doing work. Senators are here on the Hill, but it's a lot quieter today, given this so-called threat that the Capitol Police have warned about
1: wait a minute. So you're saying that they want to register everyone automatically. How do you mean automatically? Like by birth, by school, by driver's license. Like how are you automatically registering them? Question number one, question number two, you mean if someone's dead, the state's not allowed to remove them. Kind of like in Wisconsin, they had like a hundred people born in 1850 fucking voting. Right. Is that what they want? They want to sequester the power, man, 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 man. It is, isn't it amazing? I mean, yesterday was it right there. You guys slotted your own people in there and you still missed it. Man, wait till you see who's really talking.
5: Back to you.
6: All right. Thank you, Logan. Well, as Logan was just mentioning, uh, House Democrats are pushing that H.R. 1 bill that's aimed at overhauling the nation's election laws. Many Republicans, though, fear that this bill will disenfranchise American voters as it undermines election integrity, they say. Our next guest, Florida Congresswoman Kat Kamek, is one of those Republicans. Uh, Take a look at what she had to say regarding the H.R. 1 bill.
7: This bill will allow 16-year-olds to vote, give $25 vouchers to individuals to donate to the candidate of their choice, redefines free speech, triggers universal mail-in ballots, creates an election czar, and strips voter ID requirements and so much more. This bill jeopardizes the future of Americans' freedoms of speech with new requirements for public uh, public disclosure of support of political campaigns and candidates. Mr. Speaker, we cannot claim to be protecting the rights and freedoms enshrined in our Constitution when this, the For the People Act, more aptly named the For the Politicians Act, is under consideration.
6: And joining us now to discuss is Congresswoman Kat Kammer herself. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Let us know what is your primary concern. I know uh, amongst the listeners.
1: First of all, for those of you that can't um, see because you're listening on the podcast, she's actually quite cute. And um, I like her. She's cute.
6: That you just gave there on the floor. You're also saying that this basically is just a power grab from the top down.
7: Absolutely. And thanks for having me on this afternoon. You're right. It is pretty quiet up here on Capitol Hill, but it is. This is just a top down power grab. Look, This is HR one. I'm sitting in my office right now. This is the bill that no one has read. God knows what is tucked into this monstrosity. And if you can't read a bill, you shouldn't vote on it. And I guarantee you that my colleagues on the left have not read this bill. It's garbage. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I tell people who are in favor of this is if the Democrats have been so concerned about election integrity, why didn't they pursue this last Congress? And then don't we all recall? during November and December, where they said this was the best, most secure election that they've ever seen in their lifetime. Well then why is HR one their top priority Why all of a sudden the push for this new reform. And I like to tell people this six to one match that we're seeing of small dollar donations that taxpayers and corporations will be footing the bill for. Let me just paint this picture. AOC posts up some explosive video name calling, calling everybody a racist. You name it. She raises a million dollars. Guess what? We're on the hook for the other six million. That's right. She will raise six million dollars because of the six to one match, because the majority of her donations are smaller, small dollar donations. This is ludicrous. We are absolutely losing our constitutional republic. And this H.R. one is what the Democrats have as their top priority. This cannot stand.
1: I just want to know why the fuck are we paying money to have a representative? I mean, have you thought about this? Why do we have to raise money and match money and give money to get this? I can't wait until this is gutted completely because we're going to revamp this. Like Noah, there is no money. There is no money. I shouldn't have to pay you to be my representative. You chose to be my public voice and I will support you. Now, why is there money? Oh, because we need advertising. Oh, because we need to travel. Great great. So you should be able to travel and your party should pay for that. How does the party raise money? By memberships. If the party is good, like if the GOP did its job and had people, then we would be like, yes, we would like to volunteer some of our dollar dollars so that the person can travel. But other than that, (laughs) I don't see why they need all this money. Why are they paying all these big companies? Why are we advertising? It's supposed to be about us, the people. Us, the people. We walk up to a candidate. We're like, I like you. Here's my money. Take it. I'd like you to use that as you wish so that you can take a bus, rent a car, fly and and go ahead. We shouldn't need to wear signs and pins and stickers. We shouldn't. Voting is a private thing, isn't it? I mean, you don't you don't want people to know like who you vote for. But look at how many scales we have. We have GOPs. We have RNCs. We have PACs. We have this. We have that. And then the PACs get money. And so the PACs are now, hey, are you going to do what I say? Because, look, all these people gave me their money. And I won't give it to you if you don't do mine. So wait a minute. Why do we have all these gatekeepers with our money? I'm just saying. And why are we making laws that say you're going to get a $25 taxpayer, you know, money, taxpayer dollars so that you can fund who you want? I don't want my taxes going to AOC. I don't want my taxes going to Schiff. I don't want my taxes going to Schumer. I should have a say in where my money goes. That's completely unconstitutional that you're just going to give someone my money to spend on someone that I may not approve of. Uh, that's not the way the Constitution works. And the fact that they're pushing shit they haven't read. <laughs>
7: This is dangerous. This undermines our Constitution. It undermines our Republic. We need the Senate to fight this. And I guarantee you, Americans, when they find out what's in this bill, it is going to terrify them.
8: Okay, Congresswoman,
3: we wanted to address some comments you made. Some very passionate words you had Uh, on the House floor regarding regarding H.R. 1280, otherwise known as the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. Now, the House passed the bill, just the House, not the Senate. Let's take a look at some of what you had to say regarding that bill.
7: Now, as a member of the first responder family, I can say definitively on behalf of our officers that there is absolutely nothing, nothing that a good cop hates more than a bad cop and as the wife of a first responder, this issue could not be more personal to me. My husband serves our local community as a firefighter and a SWAT medic for our local sheriff's department. And next to me here today, you see one of his SWAT vests. This is the same vest that he wore for 14 hours while on a massive manhunt for a man who had just been released from prison, who promptly raped and killed his girlfriend. It is the same vest that he wore while responding to a man who had barricaded himself with weapons, threatening to kill his own children. These are just some of the scenes that this vest and my husband has seen like so many of our LEOs. But the real threat here is not the dangerous situations that my husband has seen in protecting his community. It is the fact that this bill, and by extension, you, Mr. Speaker, want to take this vest off my husband's back. Because, yes, what this bill does is take this kind of equipment off the backs of our men
1: and women in uniform. Congresswoman. And so I have to agree and disagree on many things, but. Let's leave it at that. They're trying to strip policing. They want to federalize policing. They want to give it to robots. Now, here's where you're going to listen on a quick update today. Take a listen. This is interesting.
7: In the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who is in the death of George Floyd, are now saying Chauvin... Held his knee on Floyd's neck for nine minutes. Timestamps police body camera video shows Chauvin's knee on Floyd's neck for at least nine minutes, and not the eight minutes and 46 seconds originally outlined in the initial criminal complaint. The trial against Chauvin starts Monday with jury selection. From across the country, prosecutors-
1: so we got jury selection on Monday for the George Floyd trial that went from 846 to nine minutes. <laughs> Look at the way that stuff changes. Like the initial one was so accurate. They changed it and they updated it, of course. We have to update things because you know we need to we need to do this. We need to update things so that people can uh, uh get even more upset. We need to update things uh because that's what's up now. Let's just uh, visit a little bit on, um, on elections. Uh, protesters at the Capitol, supposedly, yesterday. Let's take a look at these protesters quickly. Heavy security at the Capitol
9: today. That's after the DHS said a violent militia group planned to t- make trouble. But there were no signs of protesters anywhere in the area. NTD's Kevin Hogan brings us the details.
0: Teams of National Guard troops armed with rifles were deployed inside the perimeter fence surrounding the Capitol on Thursday, March 4th. Intel agents from the DHS and FBI warned of a possible plot by a militia group to storm the Capitol on or around that day and remove Democrat lawmakers. Capitol Police requested to extend the National Guard presence until May. Pelosi says she thinks they should stay as long as they are needed, although it's not her call. She addressed security at the Capitol more broadly. It's going to take more money to protect the Capitol in a way that enables people
6: to come here, children to come and see our democracy in
0: action, all of you to cover uh, what happens here safely. Thousands of National Guard troops remain stationed at the Capitol. This as no protesters were anywhere in sight. Officials had also set up a fence around the perimeter that can't be scaled with barbed wire on top. D.C.'s Mayor Muriel Bowser said she does not expect the fence to stay up in its current configuration until September and commented on the troop extension. We don't know why additional forces
7: have been requested until May. I mean, that's the most plain I can answer you. We don't
1: know why. Um, It was our expectation that the, the. Wait a minute. You're the mayor. How do you not know why they have additional forces? How do you not know why?
7: National Guard support would be lessened significantly around this time.
0: Twitter was abuzz with reactions to the situation in D.C. Fox's Laura Ingram posted, where's the invasion? And conservative activist Candace Owens said certain lawmakers are pretending there is a threat to the Capitol so they can justify a military occupation of the area. Senator Josh Hawley told Fox he thinks having National Guard troops and a barbed wire fence around the People's House indefinitely is the wrong choice. In response to the alleged threat near March 4th, the House changed their schedule by a few hours, but the Senate remained in session to debate the virus relief bill. The Pentagon says it's reviewing the request to extend the deployment of 5,000 National Guard troops another two months. Kevin Hogan, NTD News. You
1: see how that works? You see how that works? Looks like the 404 attempts were a big success. Ding. Ding, ding, ding. Hmm. Shall we play a game? That's what's up. So where is it? What happened? Ah, did you think that other people would know about it? Did you? Ah, dang, 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 dang. Yes, and you should fear. Fear that of the good, because it's coming. And Vice President
9: Harris cast the tie-breaking vote to open debate on the pandemic relief bill. A new runoff election has been ordered by a judge in Mississippi, and a notary has been arrested. This after over three quarters of one town's absentee ballots, cast in the June Democratic runoff election, were found to be invalid.
1: Whoa that's a massive percentage seventy eight percent seventy eight percent oh dear 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 seventy what wait no one's contesting the 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 election fraud there I mean why are they investigating it <laughs> We talked about that before the elections, didn't we? See, there is so much going on that people are not paying attention to. (laughs) Wait till this gets the party started real good. Because this is how you let them, you let the world see. You can't tell people, you got to show them. Judge Jeff
9: Wheel said there's evidence of fraud and criminal activity in how absentee ballots were handled and counted and in how certain poll workers acted during the election in Aberdeen, Mississippi. As a result, a new runoff election for the Ward 1 alderman seat is necessary. The judge ruled that 66 of 84 absentee ballots that were cast or close to 80% should have never been counted. The declared winner of the seat had won by just 37 votes while the challenger contested the results in court. The judge said several individuals involved willfully and corruptly violated
1: one or more criminal statutes. Knowingly and willingly. Oh, I mean, we have to start small before we expand, right? So far, one woman has been arrested.
9: And several GOP members of the Subcommittee on Immigration and Citizenship are calling for a hearing. They want to know if the Biden administration has a plan to stop the surge of migrants at the border. This as 1,600 arrests are made in a single border sector, among them criminals and a previously deported sex
10: offender. Over 1,600 illegal immigrants were arrested in three days in a single Texas border sector Austin Scarrow, the chief border patrol agent for Del Rio Sector, says these arrests include more than 25 smuggling cases, two criminals and a convicted rapist who had previously been deported.
1: Those are the great people that Biden wants in our nation. Aren't they awesome? That's what's up. Now, remember, I, I warned about YouTube, didn't I? <sighs> Hence why I need to stop casting there right now. And Facebook. So I'm giving you guys time to come over to Trovo and um, Twitch. So see ya, see ya, see ya, see ya, and see ya. I mean, I really want to, but see, even RSBN was suspended.
9: YouTube suspended Right Side Broadcasting Network's channel for two weeks. This is because the channel broadcast former President Trump's speech at CPAC. YouTube removed a video of Trump's speech on Right Side's channel as well as others. Trump briefly touched on the 2020 election and warned of the dangers of unchecked big tech censorship. Right Side says YouTube claimed the video violated their guidelines on election misinformation. The video had reached nearly 4 million views. On February 28th, Right Side wrote on Twitter that they will try to, quote, play by the rules, but they would not censor President Trump. And Alabama and Mississippi hmm. lawmakers pass bills on transgender issues. This as conservatives fear that the Biden administration's push for LGBTQ policies could result in discrimination against religious people.
1: You know. Um, I wanted to talk about that. That's how we're gonna kind of come into the conversation of the things that I wanted to put in But yesterday I was watching I was listening to music that my daughter picked she likes tina turner and was it um uh Was it tina turner that we were listening to um Gosh darn it. I don't remember the song oh and it was talking about, oh, uh, the one that goes opposites attract. You know, and it was talking male, female. It's 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 gonna be a matter of time before they censor that song too, because it talks about, you know, this lovely thing between a man and a woman. Um, uh, where I'm trying to think. Come on. <laughs> what's love got to do with it that's it there it is what's love got to do with it so what's love got to do with it talks about the how opposites attract how it's man and woman <laughs> and i'm like uh, i and the first thought that came to my mind is going to be like damn they're going to censor tina turner for being um <laughs> Uh, for being anti-gender. So um yeah, so it's what's I've uh, got to do, you know, you know what I'm talking about, that one. So um uh, uh, I want us to listen to a song that will bring in our next topic. Take a listen.
5: In my on One way To a place where the air is clean And sad There's no sense to sit and watch people die We don't fight our wars the way you do We put back all the things there's no sense to keep on doing such crime. There's no principles in what you say.
11: It's springtime on Saturn, and the hexagon is out. A perfect six-sided hurricane, 60 miles deep, that could swallow four Earths. It's ringed by winds of ammonia and hydrogen blowing 220 miles an hour. The storm was seen by the twin Voyager spacecraft when they passed by in the early 80s. That was the last time until recently that sunlight graced the North Pole of Saturn, which takes 30 of our years to make one circuit of the Sun. Soon after the Voyagers departed, winter descended. Saturn's rings tipped away from us, plunging the North Pole into 15 years of darkness. Without sunlight, astronomers were limited to infrared images, They showed the hexagon was still there. But what is it? The hexagon is a narrow jet stream that circles the North Pole. Researchers think that friction with the slower clouds on either side of it creates eddies, mini-storms, that push the jet stream into a wave-like shape as it goes around. By spinning columns of water at different speeds, scientists have been able to reproduce the six-sided pattern lab. In January of 2009, the Sun began its slow rise in Saturn's north. Summer was coming. The Cassini spacecraft was there to see it. In the coming months, Cassini will slip between Saturn and its rings to pass right over the storm for a closer look. But that's not all there is to see up north. Saturn has an aurora, its own version of the northern lights, a ring of electrical fire guided by the planet's magnetic field. Rings of ice and a dancing ribbon of aurora sitting smack on top of a six-sided hurricane. Another jewel in the crown of the solar system's most photogenic planet, where the voyage and the discoveries go on.
1: Interesting, how, once upon a time, The Times <laughs> would tell you a few things. Oh, auroras, what are those? Those are just phenomenal. <laughs> they just occur randomly. Yeah. Um, so now let's get into a little bit of quantum physics because, you know, we have to show things with science uh, and things. But I want you to listen to a man called Ben Siegel. He was the one that got the internet working at CERN back in the 80s. Listen to what he had to say.
12: met Tim Berners-Lee in the mid-1980s. Then later, he wrote this his proposal and so on. I saw the proposal.
1: Listen carefully.
12: Um, and I think the second time around, or maybe the third time around, uh, a proposal actually was looked at, and uh, he was in a position to... Uh, ask for uh, a computer that he wanted to prototype this on. And I also will never forget the day when, about two or three months later, I think this was ordered in May of 1990, Tim rushed in my office and said, Ben, Ben, it's arrived, come and look. And I went in his office and I saw this sexy black cube, I uh, saw this sexy black cube, sexy black cube, uh, and he was just setting it up. And it was the easiest machine to set up that I'd ever seen. And it was so impressive. And he was, of course, you know, over, over the moon with this machine. Very soon after that, uh, it had arrived in September, I suppose, by Christmas, he had everything working. His own code, his own system, he invented everything. I went in his office and I saw this sexy black cube
1: just thought I'd drop that in there, in the midst of everything, a sexy black cube, a sexy black cube. Let's talk about other things that are black and sexy, and we're going to be talking black holes, because it's important for people to understand what um, black holes are. Now, there's this Greek lady, Kalajera. I've been following her, um, her discoveries. Wait, but you're going to see that she's going to mention someone. You're going to be like, what? What? That guy's an idiot. What? What? I kid you not. You're going to say that. You're going to be like, there's no way that that person's name was brought up because they're an idiot. Well, <laughs> maybe they just pretend they're idiots because it's um, quite fascinating what you're going to hear and see today.
13: Continue to think about the theoretical ideas. And he wrote a paper Which we have here, where he was thinking about the possibility that if space and time can warp and curve, then it might be the case that space and time can also ripple, right? The image to have in mind is think of a trampoline, right? A trampoline, you put something heavy in the middle, it has a nice curvature to it. But if you have kids that are jumping all around on the trampoline, the shape doesn't stay nice and static, it ripples, it vibrates. So he was wondering whether it might be the case that space itself might be able to undergo these kinds of ripples, these kinds of vibrations.
1: Wait a minute. Hold on a second. Are you saying that space, meaning distance, and time, meaning time, can be affected with vibrations or ripple themselves? That's interesting.
13: And this would be known as a gravitational wave. Now, interestingly, he wrote a first paper in 1916. In 1918, he corrected an error in the 1916 paper, and he continued to struggle with whether or not he actually believed that gravitational waves were a prediction of the general theory of relativity. And he worked on...
1: What have I told you gravity may be? Wait a minute. That's Einstein's talk. Huh interesting
13: on this by himself he worked on it with collaborators nathan rosen being one of them and a couple years after this paper where they expressed some confidence that gravitational waves were real rosen writes another paper where he basically says that he thinks they're all just a mathematical artifact and i think many historians think that einstein himself kind of had that view that there really weren't these ripples in the fabric of space and yet by the 1960s, when the mathematical methods had been refined, where we could really look at Einstein's equations and extract from them the actual physical predictions with certainty, it became clear that gravitational waves were a prediction of Einstein's theory, which would mean that if you had, say, two objects, like two neutron stars, rotating around, they would so disturb the environment that they'd send out this train of gravitational waves and that would mean in principle you could detect these because downstream if you're in the wake of one of these gravitational waves you will experience this kind of an effect a stretching and a squeezing
1: a stretch a stretching and a squeezing of time and space hmm wait there's more because that was actually found when two black holes merged. Wait a minute. What do you mean black holes merged? What are black holes again? Stretching
13: and a squeezing. Now I should say. This animation is not to scale. <laughs> when you actually do the calculation. You find that for a typical astrophysical phenomenon. You'd find that the stretching and squeezing. Would be less than an atomic diameter. So the question is. How could you ever. Measure something.
1: Do you hear that? It is down to the atomic level. Your little, what is it called? Those elements of life, right? The electrons around you. It would be so tiny that you would feel the effect on an atomic level. That's how it affects change of stretching and squeezing time and you are just a group of atoms that vibrate. and if you moved half an atomic mm, that would cause a change in your frequency no
13: so fine and yet as we'll discuss now exactly that kind of a measurement has been achieved and so to talk about that let's turn to our next guest and let me make sure that I'm able to introduce her appropriately and I believe I can do that now. Okay, so joining us to take a closer look at gravitational waves is the lead astrophysicist in the LIGO Scientific Collaboration. She is a distinguished professor of physics and astronomy at Northwestern. Please join me in welcoming Vicki caligera
1: Okay, so Vasiliki, that's her name. She's, she's quite incredibly smart. And though I disagree with some of her things, this by far had been one of the most fascinating things I've observed her in her research. Most fascinating. I was like, you go, girl. So
13: thank you for being here. Thank you. And we'd like to get some insight into how gravitational waves have been detected, and LIGO is the facility. So what does LIGO stand for? for LIGO
14: itself? LIGO is a double acronym, actually. Uh, it stands for uh, Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, and LASER itself is an acronym. Uh, so it's a double acronym. And what's um, that
13: acronym?
2: Oh, uh, I didn't think I was going to ask
14: you that. Uh, LASER is such ingrained in my head, I don't remember the full acronym right I
1: so, just so you know, the word laser is an actual acronym. She's Greek, actually, not Slavic. Um, so, it's an acronym. Laser. The word laser is an acronym. Did you know that? Well, you're about to learn. It's uh, light amplification
13: by stimulated emission of radiation, but you're I'm, not good, sure. Brian. I'm not sure. I'm not sure.
9: All right, so this what are we looking not at the here? Hers
14: at all, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so here's our detector. Here's our um uh our telescope our gravitational wave telescope it's a new type of telescope uh it doesn't look like your traditional telescope does it so it has this corner station where you can see it there
13: can we run that again Um, yeah thank you
14: yes and uh and then it has these tubes uh, and it's like tubes of a regular telescope, except these are on the ground and there are two of them. And from the corner station, we shoot down lasers in, uh, at right angle and they travel down these four kilometer tubes, vacuum tubes, and they reach the end. They bounce off mirrors and they come back. And they st- we study the uh, light, the laser light that comes together and through the interference pattern of the laser light, we can tell whether the mirrors at the end of those arms are being shaken in this squeeze and stretch, squeeze and stretch motion that gravitational waves are supposed to, um, affect, uh, space and time, but space is what we can think about easier. And
13: you can actually...
14: Did you hear that? So basically the lasers, the light,
1: is shot down these tubes, it bounces off of mirrors and comes back. So what they look for to see is if there's any gravitational interruption, what they call gravitational waves. And she said, this is the stretching and the squeezing you would have if there was a ripple effect in both your space and your time. And she said, we're focusing on the space, which means the distance, because that's the easiest one that we can comprehend, because we can't talk about time yet. She even says that
13: actually measure shaking by atomic distances with yes, this kind of device? Yes, in fact,
14: it's even smaller than that. It's, it's uh, uh, smaller than one uh, thousandth of the nucleus uh, on the scale of the four kilometers. It's the most accurate measurement we have ever achieved, humans have ever achieved, anywhere, in any field of science or in engineering.
13: Now, how do you know that the shaking is a gravitational wave and, like, not someone just kicking the equipment?
14: Uh, There's a lot of shaking going on uh, everywhere. And that was the reason why we didn't just build one of these detectors. We built two detectors, one in Louisiana State and one in Washington, really far away from one another. Uh, Because if the shaking is happening Uh, and it's affecting the uh, one detector, and it's coincident, I'm sorry, and it is uh, earth-based, then it's very hard to reproduce the exact kind of shaking, the exact kind of squeezing and stretching, and have it happen in two different locations, independent locations, so far away. So So what they... Picked was
1: Washington state and Louisiana state. They put together the, these tubes that they have and they shoot down the light. And like she said, one thousandth of the size of the nucleus of an atom. That's how small they can detect a change of the squeezing and the stretching because it affects you. How many times have I said it on a molecular level? So, the vibrations will change the squeezing and the stretching of space and time. So, they put it in two geographical locations, two different ones, where you know if it's someone kicking the pipe or if it's an earthquake because it would be identical in both areas, right? Because obviously there's going to be influences between the two. So, This is where your mind is going to be a bit blown while we go back to listen to frequencies and potential timelines.
14: So uh, having coincidence, as we call it, uh, at the same time with exactly the same squeezing and stretching pattern, it was extremely important. So we really needed to be able to claim such a an unprecedented claim that we detected gravitational waves. It was really important to have uh, observations of the exact same signal at the same time in two different independent locations.
13: And this and this first happened, this was the first achieved in 2015. Uh, 2015 Septem- got the world September completely,
14: 14. Yeah. Well, the world didn't know on September 14, 2015. Some of us did. Some of us did. Um, and uh, that was a life changing day uh, for the hundreds of scientists and engineers who are members of the LIGO Scientific Collaboration. The world found out on February 11th. Uh, 2016 when we made the first announcement Announcement.
13: and and so what was found
14: so what was found is uh, uh, that basically two black holes one uh, in orbit around the other uh, were disturbing space-time uh, not very close to us, uh, not at the center of our galaxy, but actually over a billion light years away, uh, at some other galaxy. And the two black holes were coming together because of the emission of gravitational waves. They were disturbing space time around them, generating these ripples that you talked about earlier. And, and these ripples were traveling for over, over a billion, uh, years at the speed of light. And on September 14th, they came, approached the Earth from the south. They hit our Louisiana detector first. And seven, about seven milliseconds later, they hit our Washington uh, state detector second.
13: And that's what you expected, because that's how long it would take light to travel. Exactly. that Exactly.
14: So there has to be a finite delay, because, of course, gravitational waves, just like light, doesn't travel instantaneously. Instantaneously, it takes time. So the two black holes as they were coming together in their orbit, losing energy because of gravitational wave emission, at the end they merged, uh, like in this other movie as well. They merged, and I'll explain the sound in a minute, because it's not self-explanatory, I should say. Yeah, not really. Uh, (laughs) Not everybody gets it. Well, Um, well, I I (laughs) did a
13: version of this on, on, on Stephen Colbert's show, and his interpretation is God, Bugs Bunny—that—that's how he uh, interprets uh, that. That's his interpretation.
14: Yeah. I should say, Stephen Colbert is a Northwestern undergraduate.
15: Well, look
13: at that. Uh,
14: <laughs> I—I've met Stephen, <laughs> uh, and we have talked about the gravitational wave discovery. So, uh, so the two black holes are coming together, and eventually, they have nowhere to go. They're coming, and they're—they're they're basically physically touching, except there is no actual surface. There is no hard surface There is that imaginary surface where light can't escape. And the two black holes merge into a single bigger black hole. They form a single black hole. And then that single bigger black hole settles and the disturbance stops and the gravitational wave signal stops. So it's a finite transient signal. Kind of interesting.
1: It kind of sounds like timelines merging and settling. Huh. That's quite fascinating, isn't it? It, I mean, it actually is quite fascinating. Now we're going to look at some discoveries they made in Saturn, around Saturn. Now I want you to remember, two black holes danced around each other. They were supposed to be positive and positive, right, or negative and negative. They're the same and they collapsed together and became one and it rippled out the change throughout the universe, a billion light years as they count. And that's how they measure (laughs) throughout the universe. And then funny how Colbert was mentioned. Now, let's watch this interesting I want to say documentary, but it's only it. I'm I'm only uh, going for like ten minutes of this because it's it's quite um, fascinating to watch what they discovered. Uh, and uh, there's audio for my podcast listeners. It's about new discoveries on Saturn in 2021.
16: When Titan was discovered by Higgins in 1655, no one could have foreseen that it held so many surprises. For centuries, people thought it as just another moon whose position, orbit, brightness, transits across Saturn, etc. needed to be duly observed and recorded. It was not until modern instrumentation was employed that Titan revealed its unusual nature. Using infrared spectroscopy, G.P. Cooper in 1943 detected deep methane absorptions similar in strength to those of other major planets. This was quite astonishing for a satellite. Further observations, in the 1970s, of stronger methane bands farther in the infrared, combined with careful laboratory comparison spectra, led to the conclusion that the amount of methane on Titan was of the order of 20% of the total Earth's atmosphere, a very substantial atmosphere 20 times larger than the atmosphere on Mars. More advances in infrared instrumentation in the 10 to 20 millimeter region revealed the presence of ethane, C2H6, ethylene, C2H4, and acetylene, C2H2. Ultraviolet data showed that the atmosphere of Titan must be quite hazy and filled with aerosols, small smog-like particles that scatter the incoming radiation.
1: I just wanted to point out, what are the basics of life again? I just, just think about this for a second because there's no life outside of Earth, right? But what are the five elements again of life? Carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and phosphorus. And here they're talking about how they've identified carbon and hydrogen on this, in this place, right? Huh. So interesting, but there's no signs of life. Of course.
16: There were suggestions that Titan's atmosphere might be more substantial, requiring the additional presence of spectroscopically non-detectable gases, such as N2, NE, and AR. From the limited amount of ground-based data, it was not possible to separate the effects of scattering from those of a denser atmosphere, and a determination of the correct amount of CH4 in a vertical column of Saturn's atmosphere remains elusive. It was clear, however, that Titan's atmosphere exhibited a most interesting character. The Voyager 1 spacecraft was, therefore, targeted to pass remarkably close to Titan, within 4,000 kilometers of its cloud tops. The data acquired were both disappointing and fascinating. Despite the excellent resolution of Voyager's cameras, the hazy atmosphere prevented any glimpse of the surface, a surface which many investigators believe could be one of the most unusual and spectacular in our solar system. On the other hand, the atmospheric data returned were exceedingly interesting and fascinating. Three instruments provided the most important data. The ultraviolet spectra showed definite evidence of N2. The radio occultation experiment provided the atmospheric temperature profile and the surface pressure. And the infrared instrument discovered a whole host of new organic molecules, as well as temperature data and information on the atmospheric structure. In fact, one might say that the capabilities of the infrared instruments were as well matched to the investigation of Titan's atmosphere, as might be hoped. The Voyager experiments found that CH4 is indeed a lesser constituent of Titan's atmosphere, estimated at roughly 4%, with a possible range of 2-10%. to Thus, the exact amount of CH4 column abundance, although much better confined, is still not precisely determined. The major constituent of Titan's atmosphere is molecular nitrogen, N2, just as on Earth. The surface pressure on Titan is 1.0.
1: Okay, so, so far they've identified carbon, hydrogen, and N2 nitrogen. Wait a minute, (laughs) sounds fishy.
16: 5 ATM, and the surface temperature is 94K, Although this surface pressure is only slightly greater than that of Earth, the amount of Titan's atmosphere in numbers of molecules is actually 11 times greater. Because of Titan's lower surface gravity, about seven times less than that of Earth, a greater amount of atmosphere is needed to provide the same surface pressure. The lower surface pressure also makes Titan's atmosphere very much more extended than that of Earth. The reason for Titan's diverse composition can be found in the extraordinary photochemistry of its atmosphere. At high altitudes, Methane is disassociated by the energy of solar ultraviolet radiation and forms free radicals such as CH2, CH3, and atomic hydrogen. The very reactive radicals form more complex hydrocarbon molecules such as ethane, C2H6, propane, C3H8, ethylene, C2H4, and acetylene, C2H2.
1: I'm just saying, if we ever run out of gas, I mean, don't we have the technology to just pipe it up into their atmosphere? I'm just saying.
16: The set of reactions that forms these molecules is rather complex. It includes creating and destroying radicals, vertical and horizontal transport in Titan's atmosphere, and collisions with the abundant constituents of Titan's atmosphere. Because of the relatively low surface gravity of Titan, atomic and molecular hydrogen escape. Thus these reactions are not reversible and Titan loses hydrogen steadily at a rate of roughly 5 times 1,027 atoms per second. This loss of hydrogen, and its replenishment by photochemical means, results in an equilibrium concentration of 0.2% H2 in Titan's atmosphere. Note that the photochemistry described is unique to Titan. It does not occur on Saturn because that planet has a huge reservoir of H2, which is held tightly by its very much larger gravity field. The molecules produced include nitriles, which are organic molecules that contain nitrogen. Additionally, oxygen-bearing molecules have been observed. The nitriles are formed by disassociation of N2, which is a very strong bond and is hard to break, so that it requires very energetic short-wavelength UV radiation, or electron impact disassociation high in Titan's atmosphere. Chief among the nitriles are hydrogen cyanide, HCN, and cyanogen, C2N2.
1: I want you to listen to what they say about the gravity, and this is why I'm putting it there. We've been talking about gravitational waves a lot, right? So they're saying that hydrogen, two, which is a bonded two, two hydrogen atoms together, um, are tightly wound because of the gravity into Saturn, and they don't escape. And then they're saying that on Titan, you know, they're lo- it's losing hydrogen like crazy, because there's decoupling, because they have all these effects that probably do it. So wait a minute. So are you saying that gravity, I mean, what do you mean by the gravity? It's like far from the sun. So is it its spin that's causing the gravity? Or is it the frequencies of these atoms and how they move together in response as a collective that creates the binding of their gravity or their earthing of their existence onto Saturn. I want you to think of it like that. Let's talk science, right? Not fluffy stuff, science.
16: The oxygen-bearing molecules are believed to come from impacts by comets that contain B-50% water and can thus supply oxygen. The photochemistry of Titan has been verified both by theoretical calculations and laboratory simulations.
1: Did you just hear water too? But there's no life. Stop it.
16: Essentially, all of the molecules observed in Titan's atmosphere have been produced in roughly the proper abundance using laboratory simulation experiments. The net result of Titan's photochemistry is the loss of hydrogen and the production of heavier and more complex hydrogen-deficient organic molecules. As of the year 2000, 13 complex molecules were identified in Titan's atmosphere. Laboratory simulations have produced an additional 20 or so complex hydrocarbon molecules that should be present in sufficient abundance that they should be detectable by some of the instruments of the Cassini spacecraft Higgins probe. There are further important consequences of Titan's photochemistry, which explain the satellite's pervasive haze layer. Complex organic molecules can connect to form long-chain polymers. These polymer chains can apparently grow to complexes containing several hundred molecules and reach a size of the order of 0.1 millimeter radius. These small particles, in turn, form irregular aggregates of 0.4 to 0.5 mm radius, and these aggregates form aerosol particles in Titan's atmosphere. Their approximate size has been determined by their light scattering properties from the ultraviolet to the infrared. The present consensus holds that the haze in Titan's atmosphere does not extend to the surface, but that the atmosphere below the tropopause at a height of about 70 km is clear. Calculations further show that it would take 50 years for the 0.5 mm smog particles to fall to the surface, so that some mechanism must exist to clear the atmosphere of this haze, very possibly condensation and precipitation of methane rain. Whatever the mechanism, a large amount of organic material, be it aerosol particles or condensable gaseous species such as ethane, must have accumulated for possibly billions of years, and it still accumulates on Titan's surface. What the surface of Titan looks like is therefore a tantalizing and intriguing question. There is speculation about liquid methane lakes or oceans. A continuous source of methane in the atmosphere is required to replenish the methane that is being destroyed by photochemistry. Or oceans several hundred meters to kilometers deep that contain a mixture of ethane, methane and nitrogen. Or possibly there is only dry land. And mechanisms that reprocess the organic material on the surface have not presently been considered. Titan is an object in our solar system, which, despite spacecraft visits, still has a large number of extremely interesting unanswered questions. For this reason, the Cassini mission decided to send a special probe called Higgins into Titan's atmosphere, rather than the atmosphere of Saturn. It is hoped that this probe will answer the many questions about Titan's unusual character. One of the big mysteries of our Earth is, of course, how life began. A number of models of early Earth's atmosphere postulate an extensive primordial atmosphere made up of H2, CH4, NH3, N2, etc., similar to the major planets. Through interactions with an intense solar wind, the Earth's hydrogen was soon lost and left behind an atmosphere similar to that on Titan. The process of photochemistry could then produce the same suit of complex organic materials that we see on Titan. Among these molecules, nitriles are the most important, because such molecules as hydrogen cyanide, HCN, cyanogen, C2N2, and cyanoacetylene, HC3N, play a crucial role in forming amino acids, which are believed to be the precursors to simple cell formation. Once life begins, photosynthesis produces oxygen. In a sense, Earth has an atmosphere remarkably similar to that of Titan, in which the main constituent is N2. The major differences lie in the second major constituent, which on Titan is the reducing gas, CH4, whereas on Earth, it is the oxidizing molecule, O2. Some of the O2 on Earth is produced by photodissociation of H2O, but the majority comes from plant photosynthesis. This process started after life began on Earth. On Earth, the surface temperature is, of course, much higher than on Titan, allowing reactions that would not occur on this satellite. Perhaps, if the temperature were 50 to 100 degrees higher on Titan, life could form on this satellite also. In any case, the satellite allows us to study the type of chemical reactions and photochemistry that is analogous to the prebiotic processes that were at work on primitive Earth. Saturn
1: That was very interesting and it's uh, new discoveries that they made um, this year. Very interesting. Very interesting. So uh, so we're not going to look at Saturn. We're going to look at its moons because the moons look like ours. And they have water, carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen. But I don't think they have oxygen because it's way too cold. Okay, sure. I just wanted you to, to see that and, and how they were talking about gravity escaping. And while their hydrogen escapes, right, our oxygen escapes, right, pretty interesting. And this goes back to my theory that dinosaurs, um, there was a lot more oxygen in the atmosphere at the time of dinosaurs. That's why they were so huge. Uh, because, you know, our atmosphere doesn't have that much oxygen in it. That's why bugs were so huge. Because they use oxygen, the pressure of atmospheric oxygen, to pump the oxygen necessary into their lymph by little spaces. Did you know that? That bugs don't breathe like lungs, but they have holes on their exoskeleton that allows the atmospheric pressure to push the oxygen through. Uh, So that makes sense as to why no longer giants, and now tinier. uh, Because gravity changed. And then you have to think, what do you mean by gravity? I mean, we constantly talk about this push and this pull. We're totally fine with the fact that the moon can pull on the earth, stretch it and squeeze it by moving the waters, but apparently nothing can push and pull anything. Hmm? Well, here's here are some conspiracy theories that have been circulating around holy areas for a long time. And is there a science to it? More than likely. And I thought that before we delve into religion, I wanted you to talk, I wanted you to listen to what the Atlantic had said a few years ago, after President Trump was sworn in, actually, why Democrats don't take religion seriously. And and we're going to, then jump into a conspiracy theory, but then jump into the more quantum stuff and see how that ties in with the conspiracy theory. So let's take a listen to this video. it's quite short, but it talks about how uh, the Democrats don't take religion seriously.
17: Democratic Party. Donald Trump overwhelmingly won Christian voters, including 81% of white evangelicals and 60% of white Catholics. The obvious reason is that Donald Trump offered these voters more of what they wanted, like overturning Roe versus Wade and appointing conservative Supreme Court justices. But there's something bigger going on. Democrats often have trouble speaking in moral or religious language, and they're part of a broader culture that doesn't take religion seriously.
18: Democrats don't know how to talk to a lot of these, these people that go to church, people of value. I mean, the Democratic Party has become a secular party.
17: So, is the Democratic Party really secular? To a large extent, yes. 28% of Democrats don't identify with any particular religion compared to just 14% of Republicans. And only one-third of Democrats say they go to religious services at least once a week. Just 10% of Democrats weren't religious in 1996. That number has tripled over the last two decades, and the trend is only likely to continue as more young people join the party. Pop culture can also be pretty hostile to religion. Some comedians, journalists, and artists actively antagonize people of faith.
19: It worries
5: me that people are running my country who believe in a talking snake. You don't have to pass an IQ test to be in the Senate, though.
17: (laughs) Partly as a response, Christians and other groups have formed their own subcultures of movies and music and news. For instance, Trump voters really love the movie God's Not Dead, which is a movie about religious liberty that a lot of progressives have probably never heard of.
16: Something wrong. I can't do what you want. I'm a Christian. If you cannot bring yourself to admit that God
8: is dead, then you will need to defend the antithesis.
17: Of course, a lot of Democrats are religious. Black Protestants, for example, have consistently supported the Democratic Party, even though a lot of these voters are conservative on issues like same sex marriage and abortion. But their views aren't always reflected in the party. Roughly one-third of Democrats identify as pro-life, but only a handful of Democratic politicians share their views. Democratic leaders can also be uncomfortable with the language of morality and religion. Sometimes, this has resulted in wipeouts that are insulting. They
2: get better if they point to gods or
17: religion. Other times, it's just embarrassing. One White House staffer recently reported that a former colleague kept deleting the phrase, the least of these, from the title of a memo, wondering whether the famous teaching from Jesus was a typo. This is a shift from the past. Progressive achievements like the Civil Rights Movement relied heavily on religious rhetoric.
2: But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the Promised Land.
17: Leaders from Martin Luther King to Jimmy Carter framed their ideals in explicitly religious terms, and audiences were receptive to those messages. Some progressive leaders do this today. Reverend William Barber, the head of the North Carolina NAACP, has successfully led a Moral Mondays protest movement against the racist policies of the state legislature.
2: I'm a preacher and I'm a theologically conservative liberal evangelical
16: biblicist.
17: You could also argue that Bernie Sanders fired up millions of young Americans with his explicitly moral language about economic inequality. But both of these men are outsiders in the Democratic Party. If Democrats really wanna be the party of inclusion, it can't just be about skin tone and sexuality. It has to be about belief too. This is Unprecedented, a weekly series in which Atlantic writers explore what's going on in this new era of American politics.
1: New era of American politics. You know, I think I wanna stick a little bit to religion. Now we're gonna um, see an undercover video that was actually done by Vice. Um, where they snuck a camera into Mecca to film Hodge. And it's quite interesting. There is a lot of talking. I know those of you that are listening to podcasts may not um, uh, uh, see much, but he explains a lot as he's uh, doing it. You're not going to be seeing with your mind. But I will help with this because it's quite um, interesting. Here we go
15: in Mecca. And this is about as quiet as it gets. Hajj is the largest annual pilgrimage in the world. It happens in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, and for Muslims it's a requirement that you have to do once in your lifetime. The Saudi government estimated that last year there were over 3 million pilgrims who attended, but the unofficial number is much higher. My parents are originally from Lahore, Pakistan. They're practicing Muslims. And last year, they decided it was time for them to perform Hajj. So I went with them to help them with their journey, but also for myself as well. It was the first time for all of us. And I didn't go thinking I was going to make a BBS documentary. I just took the smallest handicam we had in the office and literally shot from the hip. You're not allowed to shoot in most of the holy places. So this is the footage I managed to sneak out. We flew on Saudi Arabian Airlines. It was about a 10-hour flight from JFK to Medina, where we spent six days getting mentally prepared for the Hajj that we were about to embark on. In pre-Islamic times, Medina was a place where the travelers who were crossing the desert in camel caravans would come to rest. It was kind of like a desert oasis. In modern times, it's kind of the same thing, but there are less camels and more shopping malls and hotels. There's also a stunning mosque there called the Prophet's Masjid, which is the second holiest site in Islam. When you're there, you basically just go to the mosque five times a day for six days straight to get into a meditative state. The mosque is huge. It holds almost 700,000 people. And when we were there for the Friday prayer, it was pretty much full. Flying to Mecca from Medina was really interesting. Before we went to the airport, we cleansed ourselves in a very specific way. And then we had to put on a white, seamless garment made out of terry cloth that all the pilgrims have to wear. And it's a renunciation of the life that you come from. And it's supposed to put everyone on the same level. There's no upper class or lower class. Everyone's the same. It's just you in this ship. that's it. <laughs> This is called getting into a state of Iran. Besides the clothes, there are a lot of other rules. You can't smoke, you can't have sex, you can't shave, you can't cut your nails, and there are a bunch of other no-no's. So we got on this charter, just for the pilgrims, and 10 minutes after the plane took off from Medina, the captain announced that we'd flown over a designation point and we were in the zone near Mecca, and we all had to start reciting a prayer. And our group guide got onto the loudspeaker system of the airplane and started yelling the prayer. Everyone started chanting it. And I had a moment where I looked around and saw all these men and women in their white robes, the men with their beards, and just thought, if someone from the West could see us right now, they would think we were a bunch of fanatical jihadis on some kind of an insane mission, when in reality, it was just pilgrims excited to go on the spiritual quest. I think what was most odd about this flight were the, the flight attendants who were all Filipino wearing their normal Saudi flight attendant outfits, looking like they would rather have any other gig in the world than this one. We landed in Jeddah and took a bus into Mecca. And that ride into the city was one of the wilder scenes I've ever seen in my life. There were all of these pilgrims coming from all directions in all kinds of vehicles. And you see them riding on the tops of cars and vans and buses. I remember seeing a pilgrim jumping from the roof of one bus to another. Everybody's just trying to get to the city. Mecca is not a very big city. And during the year, it's a relatively mellow place, except during the week of Hajj the city completely transforms. And half the challenge of completing your Hajj is getting all these rituals done in a very strict timeline, dealing with the fact that there are about three million other people there trying to do the exact same thing at the same time. (laughs) After we checked into our hotel in Mecca, we walked towards the Grand Mosque, which is also known as the Masjid al-Haram. It's the holiest place in Islam and it's a massive structure this mosque can hold upwards of four million people with its outdoor and indoor space which during hajj is technically the largest gathering of people in the world at any given time this mosque is what muslims pray towards from all over the world and as you're walking towards it you feel the anticipation build people have been waiting their whole lives to come to this place and once you enter the mosque then you see the Kaaba. The Kaaba is a black box in the center of the Grand Mosque and it was built around 2000 BC and people have been praying towards it since before Islam started and when Prophet Muhammad finally showed up he cleaned up the place, got rid of all the idols that the pagans had been worshiping and reordained the building as the house of God. So in the Grand Mosque we had to do our first ritual which is called the tawaf which is basically doing seven counterclockwise laps around the kaaba and it's kind of like being in a mosh pit with hundreds of thousands of people but instead of it being full of angry young punk kids we were up against aggressive bangladeshi grandmothers had my parents on each arm interlocked and we held each other as we went around the structure seven times You're staring at the Kaaba it's a very intense and heavy vibe but the one thing that's a total bummer is you look up and all you see are these massive luxury five-star hotels for the super rich muslims who want to pray from the confines of their room After running around the Kaaba seven times, you have to do a bunch of other rituals in order to complete your hunt. You have five days to get it done and it's kind of like being on a scavenger hunt. You have a checklist, you have to be smart, you have to use strategy in order to make this happen on schedule. You have to do the Sai, which is walking and running back and forth between two hills. Back in the day it used to be outdoors and now it's been turned into an indoor structure with two very very long corridors you have to spend a day at Mount Arafat it's where the Prophet delivered his last sermon from and you spend the day in prayer and contemplation and beg for forgiveness for all of your sins it's a very important day and after spending the majority of it in a tent I walked out and went in the direction of the mountain and I walked through this wild scene with people everywhere, capped out with their animals. And as I got closer to Mount Arafat, it was such an incredible sight because it had been completely transformed and looked like a snow-covered peak. <laughs> Our tour group operators, before we went on this trip, gave us some guidelines and the last point on this sheet said, Be patient. Be very patient. Be very, very patient. I fully grasped the meaning of this when we had to take a three kilometer bus ride and it ended up taking eight hours. It was the middle of the night and we had to collect stones. It was one of our rituals in a place called Muzalifa. And so we got off the bus, we navigated our way around sleeping bodies all over the ground found the stones, and then uh, it was time to pray. And so we just drew the prayer rugs down on the side of the highway and hit the mats. After picking up the stones, we got back on the bus and drove to Manat. The Valley of Mana is where the majority of the pilgrims stay. It's a tent city that fills up with essentially the population of Seattle for a week. And then after Hajj ends, it clears out again and goes away. It's tense as far as the eye can see. In Mustafa, we arrived in Manana, and That's where we had to stone Satan. That's the next ritual. This one was actually a lot of fun. You had to throw 21 stones, seven at three separate Satan stoning stations. And I finally got to see what Satan looks like. Up until a couple years ago, Satan looked like three big pillars sticking out of a large pit. The space wasn't big enough. There's a stampede and people died. So the Saudi government, they built three ramps the size of a multi-lane highway. And there were three pillars inside of it that represent the devil. They're lit in shades of green. And there was a strange, rumbling, loud sound coming out of them. And as my dad pointed out, the whole thing made Satan look quite surreal.
5: Allahu Akbar!
15: Before we finish the Hajj, we had to repeat some of the rituals that we'd already done. So we had to revisit Satan, throw rocks at him two more times. We had to go back to Mecca from Mina and do another seven counterclockwise laps. And then it was time for Eid, which marks the official end of Hajj, which is a big celebration. It's the end of the state of Iram that we've been in and we slaughter an animal to celebrate it. And then the last thing you do is you shave your head. <laughs> This is the line for the barber shop. This is the line. Oh. Soon they will all be bald, all of these men. The barber shops in Mecca. Have these massive lines outside of them, and you see hundreds of thousands of baldos walking around town. And those people have all succeeded in completing their hajj, and they're
1: called
5: hajis. <laughs>
1: So for those of you that have served and called, uh, you know, people in the Middle East Hadjis, that's where it comes from. So I've actually uh, attended a hajj in the past. Um, It was quite fascinating to see the um, uh, stones being thrown. Uh, And I found it quite peculiar that everything was done in lots of seven. Um, Seven, 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 seven. Um, we'll revisit that at another time because we should let that sink in just a little bit. But I wanted to, um, go into a more conspiratorial, um, mishmash. Now remember, um, conspiracies always have root of truth. That's how disinformation is so incredible. Um, but before we do that, I want us to visit the world of science again and talk about waves of probability. What? You mean waves of possible outcome, multiple timelines. Yes. Here we go.
13: Max Born.
1: Here we go. Is that the
13: way to think about the wave associated with a particle is this. This is the new idea. The wave is a wave of probability. The wave is telling us the likelihood, the probability that the particle is at one location or another. So to show you a little visual of that, imagine this is the wave associated with a particle like an electron. Where the wave is big, that's a likely location to find the particle. Where the wave is small, an unlikely location. And where the wave is absolutely zero, that is a place where you simply will not find the electron at all. That's the picture that comes forward. Now, how would you test this idea to see if it's actually describing in reality, how the world works? Well, the first thing is you need some kind of mathematical equation that allows you to understand how this wave evolves, how it changes over time. And that equation came to us from Erwin Schrodinger, Whether you understand the mathematical symbols or not, it doesn't matter, but it's good to see that there is a bona fide, rigorous mathematical equation behind all of the imagery that you will be seeing here tonight. That is the equation that describes how this wave, this probability wave evolves over time. That's step one. So now you understand how things change in time, but to test it, well, you say to yourself this, look, If at a given moment in time, I've got this probability profile for where a particle should be located, the way I test it is, I run the experiment of searching for the particle over and over again in identically prepared situations and I count up the number of times I find it in one location or another. And if the theory is correct, you should find the particle more often where the wave is big and less often where the wave is small. So we can run that little experiment right here. So this is a simplified probability wave, the blue curve. And each of the X's is the result of an experiment looking for the location of a particle. And you see over many, many, many runs of the experiment where you record all of the locations where you find the particle. Over time, they fill out exactly the probability profile that comes from the mathematical equation. And that agreement between experiment and theory is what gives us confidence that these ideas are actually describing how the world works. So just to kind of close the loop on this, going back to the double-slit experiment, how we, we describe it, well, in this new language, the electron should be thought of as a probability wave which hits the barrier with the two openings and much like a water wave, when the wave goes through it interferes, creates this pattern of wave locations where the wave is big or where the wave is small and those locations dictate the likelihood or not of an electron landing in one of those regions. So now if we run the experiment with the little particles going out, dot by single dot, they're gonna fill out that probability profile. Where the wave is big, there are gonna be many electrons landing. Where the wave is small, very few, and where the wave was zero, the dark locations, no locations will be occupied by an electron at all. So this is the basic reason why we believe that these ideas are correct. So what this means is, by year 1930 or so, these individuals, the pioneers of quantum mechanics and others as well, these are, we have over here, Max Planck, we have Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, Werner Heisenberg, Robin Williams. Um, 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 no, Erwin Schrodinger kind of looks like uh, Robin Williams there. Um, so these fellows here developed this structure, which seems very odd, but able to describe the data. Okay, so that's the good part of the story. Now for the question that will occupy us here tonight, which is this. When we talk about, say, the motion of a particle like an electron, we describe it in this wave-like manner. It could be at one location or another or another still. But when we actually measure the electron, we find it at one single location. When we find it at one single location, we know where it is, which suggests that it must be the case that the probability wave has now spiked at that location because we know where the electron is. The problem is this notion of the active measurement affecting the probability wave in that manner does not agree with the mathematical equations. So we'll talk about this in more detail in just a moment. In fact, when you look at the mathematics, or in fact, when you think it through, even just recognizing that when we make an observation, we use a piece of equipment, that piece of equipment is itself made up the very same particles, electrons and protons and neutrons, the same particles that we use the quantum language to describe. And therefore, if we have a situation, say, where the probability wave for an electron has some non-trivial value in one location and some non-trivial value in another location, and we go to measure the position of that particle, well, the measuring equipment should be sensitive to those two components of the probability wave and therefore, in some sense, should register both of those outcomes at the same time. And that is something that never happens. We never look at a measuring device and somehow it is confused in giving us information about the location of a particle. That is the quantum measurement problem. How do we go from the spread out probability wave, which tells us a particle can be here or there or here or there, to the single definite reality that we all Experience
1: and that is the self constructed reality. So, um, we're gonna go to another uh video, but now I want to hop over to uh that black stone in Mecca. So, there's a lot of stories that are going around it. I remember back in um during a Hajj in 2015, uh, and these videos have all therefore been b- removed from then. Um, there was a an electrical storm, a really weird one. It came out of freaking nowhere, and it supposedly took down a crane and people died. Another one was uh, that there was um, a stampede uh, that happened, and it was um, pretty bizarre on how it happened and why it happened. Um, it was it was quite fascinating. Well, there's this one video, very underwatched actually, that I found where this person put conspiracy theories and actual facts together that make you go, hmm, I don't remember if this is the one that talked about the numbers. But we're going to get to prime numbers. We're just going to introduce them today because I've told you numbers are everything. And this is going to all tie in together because, as you can see, they're all kind of coming together wait a minute, you're going from quantum to the black box to Saturn to a conspiracy about this black box in Mecca that we now saw number patterns in and we're going to prime numbers. In the end, it it just takes that one click where you're like, uh-huh, now I get it. Here we go.
5: Over the five days of the last month of the Islamic lunar calendar, every Muslim who was able is required to make a pilgrimage to the Kaaba. But what is this mysterious cube-shaped edifice? And what is its significance for Muslims?
1: For those of you watching this, what does that movement remind you of? I think we saw it in that New York Times video. Pay attention.
5: The Kaaba is located in Mecca, the holiest city in Islam, being the birthplace of their prophet, Muhammad. Wherever they are in the world, praying Muslims must face in the direction of this holy structure. The Ka'aba is a cube-shaped structure, 15 meters high, draped in 670 kilograms of pure black silk adorned with Quranic verses, embroidered in gold thread. This structure was built to house the black stone, a holy object believed to go all the way back to Adam and Eve, it fell down from the gardens of heaven to a spot that would be the first temple on earth. A separate tradition says that the stone was originally Adam's guardian angel, who turned to stone on the day Adam ate of the forbidden fruit. During the holy pilgrimage, known as the Hajj, pilgrims walk seven times in a counterclockwise direction around the Kaaba as a sign of unity. Ritually pure Pilgrims all jostle to get as close as possible to the Black Stone, which has been set in the east corner of the building by the Prophet Muhammad in 605 CE. Touching the Black Stone, now worn smooth by countless Pilgrims, acts as an atonement for sins. In recent decades, Scientists have suggested that the black stone may in fact be a fragment from the impact of a meteorite that fell 6,000 years ago near Mecca. In 2004, scientific analysis of the impact site suggests that the event may have occurred within the last 200 to 300 years. But for devout Muslims, the black stone will always remain an object of holy.
1: So, I thought that was quite interesting. And what I saw was Jackson, Dean, girl, like, yeah, Saturn is Kronos in Greek mythology, and Kronos means time. Um, so, uh, I thought I would um, kind of share that with you. As you can see, the first thing we saw from the New York Times was the rotational patterns that look kind of identical by what's going on. Now, this is just to bring some connections for you so you can see. It's not judgment. Everyone does as they see fit. Uh, You know, uh, the rituals, the, the praying, I mean, reading about these things will fascinate you. But you can understand that there's always a method if you put things together. And then it clicks. It's like puzzle pieces. You know, the numbers, the movement. And I want you to, um, I want to see if this one um, has a... Uh, Oh, it's too graphic. I don't want to play it. Where all these people died of a stampede. Now, the going theory is that uh, MBS was going and, you know, um, it was because he was going that people were going opposite and it was a stampede. But having attended a hodge myself. It seemed really unlikely. I mean, yeah, people would bust themselves in and push in because they wanted to make sure they would go and get a spot. But the stampede made absolutely zero sense. Um, Now, another thing that I wanted to say is um, we're going to be learning about prime numbers. um, And why we need a 23 million digit prime number is quite interesting to see. but. Again, the numbers counter-clockwise in the same shape and form of something else that represents time that is going such. There are so many theories that go round and round and round, and it seems as if you have bits of this puzzle scattered throughout history, throughout time, throughout different cultures and religion. And when you put it together, you're able to stand on the moon and look down and see how everything fits. And this is how you can command and squeeze and stretch yourself. Take a listen to prime numbers. Hold on. Here we go.
19: added by one and themselves. You remember prime numbers, right? Numbers that can only be evenly divided by one and themselves? Well, it turns out finding prime numbers is not only useful for protecting data, but it could make you money. On December 26, 2017, the largest prime number ever discovered was found by Jonathan Pace of Germantown, Tennessee. The number is over 23 million digits long, meaning I don't really have time in this video or my entire life to list the whole thing out but it's easier to call it by its nickname, M77232917. It gets its name because that's the exponent you raise two by to find it. Oh, and don't forget to subtract one when you're done multiplying 77,232,917 twos together. Otherwise, you'll just create a number you can divide by two and that kind of defeats the whole purpose. Prime numbers found this way by raising two by a prime exponent and subtracting one are called Mersenne primes, named for a 17th century French friar hence the capital M in the shorthand name. 3 is a Mersenne prime, since it's 2 to the second power minus 1. Same for 7, which is 2 to the third power minus 1. But the exponent has to be prime, 2 to the sixth power minus 1 is 63, which is divisible by 3, and so not a prime. 9 of the 10 largest primes found to date are Mersenne primes, not because they're the most common. The prime number theorem tells us there must be a simply huge number of undiscovered primes between this newly found one and the next largest Mersenne prime. But we find them this way because that's how we keep searching for them. In fact, you can be a part of the search for the next one. You don't even have to do the math yourself, just some software provided by the great internet Mersenne prime search or GIMPS. The software uses the idle processing power of your CPU to run what's called the Lucas Lemer test, where Mersenne numbers are checked against a specific set of numbers. If the Mersenne number you're checking divides evenly into a certain number in that set, then it passes the test and is indeed a prime number. Obviously, it takes quite a bit of horsepower to see if a 23 million digit number divides into an even bigger number, which is why the project needs the public's help. Almost 200,000 users are running the GIMP software, and if their PC runs a number that passes the test, they could win money. Pace is eligible for a $3,000 prize, and whoever finds a 100 million digit prime could win $150,000. It's like cryptocurrency mining for those of us that can't afford to buy a dozen graphics cards. You may wonder why we bother searching for primes at all. Why, for the glory, of course. We've only found 50 Mersenne primes, and next to almost every one of them is the finder's name for all of nerdy eternity. Plus, prime numbers play a crucial role in keeping data secure. One standard, RSA encryption, relies on multiplying two large prime numbers together to generate a key. Knowing the two primes that went into the key is the secret to decrypting the data, but it takes an impractical amount of computational power and time to suss out what those numbers are if you don't already know them. So the key can be public and your data is still secure. Of course, since the Mersenne primes we've been finding lately are tens of millions of digits long, these may not be the best candidates for encryption. If you see a key that's an absolutely huge number, it won't be hard to guess which Mersenne prime went into it. Gigantic primes won't be useful until quantum computing is used to break RSA encryption. And even then, we may just use a different method of protecting data altogether. So there may not be much practical use in searching for Mersenne Primes, aside from winning that $150,000 prize for running a program while you just watch YouTube. I gotta download that software when I get home. Before you run off and download GIMPs, go ahead and subscribe. And for more math...
1: So let me tell you something. So they're paying you a ton of money to run software that you can run yourself, right, to find out Bigger numbers, because they're taking that 23 million number and multiplying with it another number to see if they can find out if that's the magic number. Magic number? Wait a minute. Are you saying they still don't know how to crack the code on an atomic level? Because <laughs> that's the key to quantum prime numbers. What are, what are the... uh? Well, you know what? Let's see. What are the usual prime numbers? Let's do like an introduction to prime numbers. That's, that's that's really important. Let me see if I can find some quickie that can tell us what prime numbers are. Let's go to PBS. That'll be quite interesting. PBS, PBS will tell us some prime numbers because you'll be quite interested to see. Um, what prime numbers really stand for. I know a lot of you know, Fibonacci series. <laughs> we say it, but do we know what that means?
10: Prime numbers just a figment of our collective imagination, or do they really exist separate from our human minds? To start, here's a fairly simple math statement. The Goldbach conjecture says that every even number is the sum of two primes. A prime number is one that's only divisible by itself and one, like 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, 17, and so on. For example, 6 is not prime because it's divisible by 2 and 3. So the Goldbach conjecture says that every even number is a prime number plus another prime. For example, 4 is 2 plus 2, 8 is 3 plus 5, 20 is 7 plus 13, and so on. Prime numbers are defined by, and principally about, multiplication and division. But the Goldbach conjecture is about what happens when you add them. That's part of what's weird about the Goldbach conjecture, and mathematics in general. Humans pick how to define mathematical objects, but then those objects take on a life of their own and have properties and behaviors we didn't intend. This throws into question whether or not math exists independently of the human mind. In the case of the Goldbach conjecture, we picked the definition of prime number, and then their relationship with even numbers just sort of sprung up. In this way, mathematics can feel like you wrote the first page of a book, and then you're figuring out the rest. Nobody had to write the next page, it just sort of unfolds, like you're tapping into a story that was already written, which is strange. And what gets even stranger about the Goldbach conjecture is that in the nearly 300 years since the conjecture was formulated, nobody has ever proved it. Computers have tested even numbers up to this huge number, and they've always been able to find two primes that add up to the even number. But mathematicians don't have a proof that it holds for all even numbers. And this points to something really important about math. Math isn't like science where you gain enough evidence and declare something true. You have to have a precise, logical proof. In this sense, mathematics is about perfect knowledge. Individual mathematicians may make logical mistakes, but whole mathematical theories aren't disproven the way they are in science. Mathematical knowledge just accumulates rather than revises itself. But what is all this knowledge about? Well, it's about mathematical objects like prime numbers. And numbers are weird objects. In fact, there's a serious debate about whether numbers even exist. You can't see or touch them, which makes them seem sort of made up. But unlike most fictions, numbers never change. You can make up new rules for checkers, but two plus three is always gonna be five. And besides, If numbers don't really exist, how come we can use them to construct skyscrapers that don't fall over? Let's move away from prime numbers and try to answer these questions with another mathematical object, the circle. In school, you probably learned that pi is the ratio of the circumference to the diameter of a circle. This statement is not about a real circle. Real circles have defects, and while the number pi is infinitely precise, any real measurement has a limited amount of precision. So actually, pi is the ratio of the circumference to the diameter of a perfect circle. This fact about the definition of pi seems simple enough, but there are actually two very different ways to interpret it. The first option is called realism. A realist would say that there is some fixed idealized circle and all mathematicians throughout all of space and time are talking about the properties of that circle. Pi is the ratio of the circumference to the diameter of that circle. Realists think that the objects that mathematicians study are real, really real, and exist independently of the humans that think about them. So a perfect circle exists, just like a water molecule or the planet Jupiter exists. One version of this is called Platonism, as in the ancient Greek philosopher Plato and his idea of Platonic forms. There's a form of a circle, and all circular things in the physical world embody that form. But mathematicians aren't studying physical circles. They're studying the platonic form of a circle, just as chemists study molecules and astrophysicists study planets. Here's what's great about realism. It aligns with the way people feel while doing math.
17: It positions
10: mathematicians as investigators of sorts. They're like explorers in a sea of numbers and shapes and ideas. It's how actual mathematicians talk. But Platonism leads to a big problem. Where does our knowledge of these forms come from? Actual explorers learn by physical interactions. When Neil Armstrong famously described the surface of the moon, he was relying on his senses like touch and sight. Photons were bouncing off the moon into his eyeballs. But when Goldbach saw the connection between even numbers and primes, it's hard to believe he was literally interacting with the platonic forms of the numbers. If numbers or a perfect circle exist, how do we access them to learn about them? This question is irritating enough that many philosophers of math have taken the opposite approach, anti-realism. Let's go back to our fact about pi. Chi is the ratio of the circumference to the diameter of a circle. The anti-realist would say that mathematicians just made up the rules for being a circle and are drawing out the consequences of those rules. One version of this is called formalism, which sort of equates mathematics with a game, like chess. Mathematicians are playing out the rules of the game. It's dependent on the human minds that created it.
1: So what they're saying is, is that there's an intelligent design that exists. Nobody knows why it exists. They're following the rules because it's the rules. They don't know why it's the rules, but they're playing by the rules. And to, to see that it is divine, they have to prove, or to see that it is real, or to see that it has a foundation, they have to prove that it doesn't exist. Does that make sense? Because at the end of this, I'm going to give you a rabbit hole, just in numbers, that's going to blow your mind. Okay? And this all ties into a lot of conspiracy theories. And you're going to be like, what? So look at this. This is how they're taking it. They're like, I don't know why people said, oh, yeah, you know, triangle has 180 degrees because I said so. Well, where'd you come up with that? Oh, it's pi. It's 360 degrees for a circle. Where? Well, how do you know that? I just do because it, it makes sense and everything else works around it. Well, this is this and this is that. Where did you get the instructions for those constructs?
10: What's great about formalism is that it solves the problem of Platonism. We know things about math because we made up the rules. We don't have to look anywhere else. The problem in treating math like it's completely made up is what mathematician Eugene Wigner described as the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences. Math is robust and an amazingly precise language to describe everything from quantum mechanics to the stock market it's hard to imagine that a game so accurately describes reality. Knowing the rules of chess doesn't help scientists launch rockets into space, but knowing math does. That's part of why it's so difficult to understand what math is. Mathematician Ruben Hirsch wrote that the working mathematician is a Platonist on weekdays, a formalist on weekends. At the end of the day, most mathematicians, this one included, are content just mathing it. Mathematicians love their subject. It's beautiful and mysterious, abstract, yet concretely descriptive, whatever it is.
1: So in other words, nobody understands why certain things happen and why certain numbers are like they are. Well, you know, here's another weird thing. So Antarctica, let's just touch on that. Antarctica, right? Let's just take the coordinates that people have given us of locations, your coordinates on the map, where you are right now, sitting down, very precise, per degree. Someone made it up, and, and it works. So, yeah, those are the rules, and that's it. I mean, it could have been changed. But what have I said before? That uh-huh, if the Egyptians had a lake, they wouldn't have a river god. It would be a lake god. So let's think of coordinates. Let's think of prime numbers. And let's think of some weird thing that is that circles a conspiracy but doesn't make sense. Why would there be a church on a block of ice with penguins and just researchers? So bizarre. Mm-hmm. Bizarre.
20: ...los fieles. Uh, el altar, uh, el altar, uh, solo pueden ingresar los... Las puertas de nuestra iglesia están mm, So Sacerdotes oh, y otras personas que prestan sus servicios... Eh... Ah, Aquí ah, ah, vemos el insensato in uh, los uh, iglesias católicos igual sí. o igual. Nosotros consideramos a los católicos nuestros hermanos, especialmente ahora in uh, pleno siglo 21, uh, cuando los tiempos nos llaman a una labor común uh, para difundir en el mundo el pie la santidad, los mandamientos y las enseñanzas de los llama El altar del sector donde se encuentra...
1: So I thought that little. I, I know a lot of people that are on the podcast probably don't don't see. So I'm going to tell you that's the uh, s- the only church in Antarctica that people have just seen. It's a Russian Orthodox church in Antarctica, and obviously they're speaking Spanish, which makes you wonder why. Well. The proximity to South America, most of the labor that's actually imported into Antarctica for labor are um, Hispanic-speaking. So um, there's an Orthodox Christian church. I mean, the coordinates are quite interesting, especially if you see them from specific uh, perspectives. See, math plays a massive role, from where pyramids are placed to where walls are built to where churches are done to where things are erected. Yet, math hasn't been explained. Why is 1 plus 1, 2? Why prime numbers exist? And why are we following the rules in where we built things? I mean, if you look at the numbers that actually point the coordinates of where this church is, you'll be like, stop it! Stop! And why am I bringing up this church? Because for some reason, it's been intertwined with that devastating, lightning, deadly... Attack during a Hajj. And that's a conspiracy theory that no one understands. You know, this, this thing happened in Saudi Arabia. Suddenly, Putin's fleet turns up. Suddenly, uh, you know, the, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church comes and takes away something from Mecca. And then the battleships bring it down to Antarctica, where the, the head of the Orthodox Church arrived. He visited it there. And then, if you remember, months and months, maybe almost a year to date, didn't we do that show where Epstein's jet just disappeared from someplace in America and just appeared in Antarctica according to the flight paths? This is, it's quite interesting and fascinating. Sounds totally conspiratorial because it is a conspiracy. Not in the way they tell you. And the more you get these puzzle pieces, the more you can put them together, the more they click, the more they make sense. You have to ask yourself, why was Barack Hussein Obama dancing in Argentina and then going somewhere else? Why is it that you're not allowed to go? What? is going on yeah it's it's super cold you just don't want to go so is the fucking arctic ever been to Bano, alaska that shit will get you depressed in a heartbeat 24 hours of darkness you got to call the local police to find out what time it is i kid you not i asked someone how do i find out what time it is sometimes they were like oh just pick up your phone and ask the police it's like a small place where you pay eight dollars for peanut butter those i mean it's cold there too it's no colder in Antarctica sometimes than it is in freaking North Dakota. I, it, it's a question people should ask themselves. And while all the rubbish is happening on the news this week, next week we're going to have fun visiting the news, global and domestic, okay? This week... Focus on just gathering little itty-bitty puzzle pieces of knowledge because they'll help. And if you see things from that perfect language of math, it totally makes sense. Nothing can catch you with your pants down. It's all part of a bigger picture, and it will all come together. The one thing you should do in any time of questioning who, what, when, where, what is going on, how are we going to do this, you have to understand that some of these things are just greater than you. And we have to accept that, that they are greater than us. But that means that the role we play is even bigger. Hence why I keep circling back. (laughs) Circle back, girl. That video with Saki, I love it. Um, Resonating on frequencies of thought increases the outcome of probability. Oh, gosh, you know, I'm going to have to extend this show. I'm so sorry, guys. We're going to have to do this. Because I didn't get into um, the cubits, and we should um, let's talk about the other worlds. Because that you have to, I have to leave you with this this weekend. I really do because it's going to be important for um, the movie that I want us to watch on Sunday night. So this was a quite interesting conversation with which um, ta- you know um, comes into cubism. Cubism with a Q, right? So, if we can't see other worlds, you know, because there's many other worlds, to the many other worlds approach of quantum mechanics, are there alternate worlds? This is all math. And here's where mathematicians and scientists question, well, if we can see that there are many other worlds in quantum mechanics, then what's the difference in believing in God if you believe in that? Mm?
13: So there's our our first approach. And now what I want to do is immediately move on to the second. Why don't I vote? (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm to be the objective moderator here. But um, (laughs) maybe maybe I'll I'll jump in uh, here or there at some point. So the many worlds approach to quantum mechanics, a completely different solution to this measurement issue that brings up a whole lot of other fantastically interesting ideas give us your best shot convincing us that this is the way to think about it. Yeah, the
18: you'll all be convinced. There we go. The, <laughs> the uh, you, know, you gave this wonderful quantum algorithm that we're all taught in uh, physics undergraduate school. You start with a state of the universe, a wave function, a quantum state. It evolves with time. There's some equation, Schrodinger's equation. And then, if you were to make a measurement, the probability of getting a measurement outcome is proportional to the square of the amplitude that obeys that equation. OK, so clearly it's step three that is the embarrassment here, right? It sounds different than anything we've ever heard. It's awkward or whatever. So many worlds is the following. You have a state, quantum state of the universe, a wave function. It obeys an equation, the same equation that we had before, Schrodinger's equation. Now stop talking. Just shush. That's it. That's what the many world says. That's the entirety of what we call the Everett formulation of quantum mechanics after Hugh Everett, who invented it. There he is, Hugh Everett. And, uh, it says, you know, that the third step, the step where the probability comes in, that happens whether you put it in or not. That naturally emerges from the wave function and its evolution. And why does that happen? Well, you know, remember you had the nice picture of looking for the particle in Manhattan and you said the measuring Aww. device is gonna measure and if you just took naively seriously the equation, the measuring device itself is in a superposition. So there's one part of the wave function of the universe that says the particle was here and the measuring device found it there. There's another part of the wave function that says the particle is somewhere else and the measuring device saw it somewhere else. And the Everett formulation says, yes. Believe the equation, accept the equation, trust what that equation is telling you. And you want to match, as David rightly emphasizes, you want to make sure that that sort of, you know, giving into the equation and letting it wash over you actually matches our experience, and those of us who are Everettians think that it does.
13: So for a picture of that, if we go back to our little dart thing, and again, criticize the image of it's not capturing the idea, you know, roughly speaking, but we might imagine that the dart now is going towards the dart board and what happens is in some sense it lands in all of these different locations in all of these different realms these different universes if you will and in this approach there's no collapsing to one outcome all the possibilities actually occur so we just take a look at this guy again just to have it in mind to compare with others you got the wave and the wave is the wave like you said that's why the wave is still waving over there because nothing's happened The wave is still describing what's going on.
18: That's right, and what's crucial to this picture, especially to people who, you know, don't hang out on the wrong street corners where we discuss quantum mechanics, uh, (laughs) is that the worlds, we have many worlds here, well, we have nine here. Yep. They're not put in by hand. They were always there as possibilities in the wave function. All that Everett says is, take them seriously. They're not added to the theory. There's nothing added to the theory. There's just a wave function and an evolution equation. And we live on one of these. And it's very much as if you know, the world were a stack of papers, you know, a, a sheaf of papers. And all the papers start out the same. And as time goes on, they become a little bit different. And every one of those is a separate world. And people don't like it, but it was always there in quantum mechanics. So how was this received when it was first put forward so you everyone immediately it. said that must be right what's
20: that
18: <laughs> uh the story that i was told was that hugh everett was a graduate student at princeton working with john wheeler and he came up with this idea and you know wheeler was a visionary physicist yep. and and uh old school quantum mechanics guy, friends with Niels Bohr. So he actually sent his grad student, Everett, to visit Niels Bohr in Copenhagen to like, say, look, i figured out quantum mechanics. And he came back so depressed that he left physics because the uh, reception that he got was not encouraging. And I think that traditionally it's not been uh, encouraging. It's been very difficult for people to uh, jump on the Everettian bandwagon. But I think we have momentum. And I think especially it's because we understand the dynamics of quantum mechanics better and better. We've developed tools like decoherence and, and things like that. We have seen in experiments the kind of behavior that is predicted by this idea that the wave function is always there. So I think that it's just much easier now to believe in the many worlds picture than it was 50, 60, So can I
13: just ask you one question that comes in and it's a natural question, I'm sure people here, but this is from Elizabeth S in Tennessee. How can there be many worlds we can't see? How is that different from thinking about God or angels?
18: We have an equation. If we had an equation for God and angels.
1: (laughs) See, this is very important, you guys. See, this is how scientists learn how divine everything is. The more you challenge it. I mean, what's the difference? You're saying that there's other worlds. This is why I always say the past, present, and the future exist at the same moment. They are, and they simply are. The light simply is. It doesn't travel. It doesn't move. It just is. And so what's incredible is that there are multiple worlds that may stem off. And the question that one should ask is, do they coexist? Or do they converge like those two black holes? And hence the stretching and the squeezing until what they collapse into one. This is by time, gets boots. Every single cell in your body can feel it when there's squeezing and stretching, the delay, the dragging. I mean, look, guys, it's the 5th of the month already. Remember February? When it was February 5th, you were like, is February over yet? Like forever in a day. Hello. We've been in February forever. Do you see the difference? One time or one outcome. Absorb the others.
18: I might believe in (laughs) that. You know, again, it it is, again, a very good question. You're right. Because what right do we have to accept the existence of all these things that we all admit we will never see? And the answer really is that is what the equation predicts. And by accepting that equation, I find a set of predictions that match, I would claim, perfectly onto every experiment we've ever done here in the world. I think it uh, to be our job as scientists to develop the simplest, most powerful, most comprehensive theory of the world that fits the data. And that's what many worlds is. And the worlds are there. You don't don't count the ontological extravagance of a theory by counting the number of worlds in it. You count it by the number of equations in it. And I have the fewest equations of anyone up here.
1: That means that he's understood the predictive analytics. Like I've told you, there's multiple. There's infinite timelines, but they're like zero 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 point zero 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 zero, one percent. You're not going to count those. You can discount them because they don't become prominent. And do you know how many are usually prominent? Seven So interesting seven are usually prominent at the same time. Um, I don't know what this gentleman's number is, but that's quite interesting, isn't it? And for those that can uh, feel like uh, a moment in time, if it's gone by fast, it means that you were already through your experiences on a different thread of the web on the superhighway of the one line that absorbed the others those of you that have been riding other waves or other strings felt it slower because you were coming you were being pulled into another so there was resistance stretching and squeezing again and that's felt on a molecular level um just like when the two black holes collapse, like who would think that two black holes can collapse together?
3: David, what do you think? Uh, Well, you know, the worry, I mean, this is, this is, Everett's original proposal was one of the most sort of radical and heroic and thrilling and seductive, I think, proposals in the history of science. There are all kinds of reasons to get very excited about it, and I don't know anyone who I think of as smart who hasn't gone through, who who knows about this stuff, who hasn't spent a good amount of time very excited about this interpretation. The question at the end of the day, this is something that Sean alluded to, I mean, the the place around which most of the worries about the Edward interpretation have coalesced over the years is whether it can make sense of of the chanciness of our experience of the world. This chanciness is absolutely crucial to the way we verify quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics makes certain predictions about the probabilities of the outcomes of experiments. We do many such experiments like you were showing in the introduction. We, we gather up frequency information for how these experiments come out, and it's on the basis of these sorts of collections of experiments that we take ourselves to have good reason to believe in quantum mechanics in the first place. Like I say, the point around which most of the worries have coalesced over the years is whether something like the Everett interpretation can make sense of those probabilities and the very simple way of saying where the worries come from is just to point out that this picture of the world is completely deterministic Given the way things start out, given the initial wave function of the world, it's possible to predict by solving the equations exactly what the world is going to look like at all future times. There will be this branching structure. I will, in some sense, have many different descendants, but it's not- That are all you. That are all me. But it's not clear how it's going to make sense to assign probabilities to my ending up as this one or that one. The worry is that it would be like saying to an amoeba that's about to split, do you think you're gonna end up as the one on, what do you think the chances are that you're gonna end up on the right or, or as the one on the left? It seems like the right answer for the amoeba to give is, gee, that's a stupid question probabilities aren't involved here at all I'm for sure going to have one descendant that's on the right I'm for sure going to have one descendant that's on the left Um, that seems like at least very naively there's a long history of discussions of this Sean has contributed to it lately in a really interesting way but there's been this worry from the beginning that probability talk just isn't going to make sense if it doesn't make sense this is not a theory that can account for our empirical experience so, so basically you're
13: saying if i if i'm the experimenter in the lab right and there's a 50 percent chance i find the electron here 50 percent chance that i find it there i do the measurement in this approach i am going to see the electron over there and another one of me is going to see the electron over there so if i ask myself what's the probability say that i'm going to see it over there it's not 50 percent it's 100% because right. there will be a me who sees it over there. Right. And I'm absolutely what's the problem? I see it on the left? 100%, not 50% because there will be
18: a version of me that sees it. What say you to that, Sean? Well, I think it's exactly the right thing to focus in on in the Everett yeah. interpretation, unsurprisingly, since David knows what he's talking about. I always worry when David says I've made an interesting contribution, <laughs> but thank you
1: Now, let me tell you something about the science community. For those of you that are watching, as you see David, he seems like he just rolled out of his office where he stays as a hermit and just solves math problems. And some of you made comments, he looks like he dressed in the dark. His mind takes over everything. He's probably never worn that jacket in years because it's oversized. He doesn't really care. His mind speaks for himself, and what he said was, "You don't have to underst- You don't have to um, predict the probability of there's going to be a timeline where you know all of us will be enslaved. There will be a timeline where all of us will not be enslaved. There will be a timeline where humans will be." nothing like they are today. There is a timeline like this because they all coexist. That is what he's saying. That at a hundred percent, all of them will exist. Now which one will you be conscious of? Well, there's going to be a version of you that can see all of them if you can see, if you can see. But there's going to be a version that will absorb the others if it is stronger. Now, this they haven't touched upon, but when they get into the conversation of cubism, which is right here, that's where it goes. Because here, um, on the screen, for those of you watching on a podcast, they talk about the de Broglie and Bohm theorem. And all these scientists were like, yeah, I like it, I don't know, whatever, David, the one that you heard saying that it's a dumb question to say which one will exist when all of them will exist, um, uh, gave a thumbs up to Spontaneous Collapse and gave a a thumb down to the many worlds. But you would say he said that all of them will exist. Yes, they will all exist, but he believes that there's a spontaneous collapse, which means all of them will exist, but only one will survive, which then will branch out to another seven, and all will exist, but only one will survive. Does that make sense?
13: So we are now to our final candidate, Cubism. So we've heard this word, a few times mentioned, Rudiger. Tell us what this approach is about.
8: Okay, I bought a quantum system to um, to do an experiment on. So let's just flip this quantum system. Okay, so what's what's the probability of heads?
13: Hundred uh, percent. Many worlds <laughs> approach. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. My,
8: fifth. Um, uh, let me play along. Fifty percent.
13: Well, is that about? what you want me to say? I, I, I you no, played no, well, along well, with me. Stick, so I'll play
8: along with you. Stick with one hundred percent. Oh, okay. I have zero percent. Okay. Okay. My point being the probability you have a different one from me. So this is actually about you and about me. It's not about the system directly. So the probability actually is your belief or my belief about what you will see. If I show it to you, I can show it to you. You see it.
1: Did you catch that? I know his accent, you know, is quite thick. What he said was I'm flipping a coin now what's the probability that it's heads? What's the possibility that, what's the possibility that the probability that it's heads? So the commentator says, well, I say a hundred percent, just like the many worlds, all of them will exist. He goes, or should I say 50%? What do you want me to say? He says, no, you, what your belief is, is that it's a hundred percent. And my belief is zero percent. So then when I show it to you, you will see what your belief is. Did you catch that?
18: Thanks. He was right. Yeah.
8: (laughs) 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 Um so <laughs> take us a little further so i, uh, so I understand <laughs> what this is about. So probability in this in, in this is i mean uh, j- just an example for how probability is is um is used in in Bayesian personalist probability theory which actually is um a modern um, full account of probability which is used in widely um, in in, in, in statistics economics and some parts of physics. So this is a is a, is, is, a, is, is a respected and very useful and actually the, I, I believe, the only really fully consistent approach to probability. Probability is belief about what you will experience, what, what you will see. Now, what cubism says is that um, you, you, you do not need to uh, modify the uh, concept of probability of quantum mechanics. So, even quantum mechanics, probabilities are personal degrees of belief. One, so, they, basically, the probability I write down for a measurement outcome is my um uh, it's my expectation of what I will experience when I perform the experiment.
1: Okay, so this guy is a genius. You understand what he just said, right? He said in quantum mechanics, we have to accept that what our belief is when executing these problems is how the answer comes to it. What you believe and what you want to see is the outcome. This is the key of quantum mechanics. And this is the key as to why, when you look at probabilities, they're always subjective. This is why normal human beings, like this genius that you're seeing on your screen with the heavy accent, understand that it is Subjective. Probabilities are always going to be subjective. Now, many people say, well, the probability of a stock going up is not subjective. Well, yes, it is, because a lot of people are subjectively investing in it because they believe that whatever that company is doing is going to grow. Hence, your prediction is subjective. Objective is, yo, we've got all these timelines, I could see them all. And the only way that you can shift one that's most prominent because a lot of people have the subjective view that that timeline is going to come out, the only way to shift it is to shift how you see that probability. Do you understand? Now, others may call it meditations. Others may call it prayers. Others may see it optimistic. But collective perception provides the probability of an outcome because all five of them are on stage. He flips the coin and all of them say, we say a hundred percent heads yet for him. He's like, "Nope, it's not. So even though it's heads, he's like, uh, you know, that's not really a head. He says it, but the other four, even though it's a tails, they said it's heads. They're hundred percent sure. So guess what that coin is heads. That is the foundation of a psyop too. They can make you see what you want. You see how you can change things. He's telling you from a quantum mechanics, quantum physics perspective, everything is subjective. That is what Cubism is. Hence, Q. Uh,
8: so, So the point is the probability is not a property of this coin. This is on my hand. The probability is actually my belief. And uh, now quantum states are equivalent to probabilities. Quantum states determine probabilities of outcomes. Quantum states are fully mathematically equivalent to probability distributions. So in that sense, um, probabilities are an experimenter's or an agent's expectations for quantum states. Sorry, I said probabilities or quantum states. Quantum states encode an experimenter's or agent's expectations for ex- ex- experimental outcomes.
1: So quantum physics, guys, that we have been looking at for months tells you what? That a particle being shot between two choices will end up in an array of places, right? It's not, it just doesn't stay, there's a probability of everything. Now, where you see it land is where you want it to land. That guy's a genius, so's the other guy who sat there and got dressed in the dark because he doesn't give a crap. You know, the first time I gave a TED talk. This is so funny. I actually went there with a t-shirt that had I and then the Adam Coitus. So crass, right? A pair of jeans rolled up and um added us <laughs> slides, right? And a ponytail. I really didn't give a crap. I wanted them to hear what I had to say. So you know people that 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 are confident in what they have to, to say really don't care what they look like. This guy ha- probably doesn't even engage with people other than if he's forced to, and he was forced to be on that stage, and it was incredible to see him come out, right? But as you see from that, from those little bits of those conversations, what did you grasp? That every single probability or outcome, every single tomorrow, every single next week, every single next month, right? Every single one. Is what you want it to be. If you collectively go there, now objective people, which I say are far and few, they can see all of them in front of them and they realize what is needed in order to steer for the one that is the best outcome, what they believe is the best outcome. And that keeps going back and forth like a wave, right? (laughs) Like March 4th it was great. It was fabulous. It was a success because it showed the actual fear that they have. This was just a verification. You're going to be like, what, what? (laughs) Soon, everyone will see what has been going on in the background. I mean, the President's State of the Union speech pretty much told you what's going on. So... That is something that is quite fascinating if you ask me, and it's important that we think of it as such. This is why it's important that people stop saying, oh my gosh, it's all over. Quantum physics, quantum mechanics tell you that the outcome of an atom splitting is where you believe it will fall. Where you believe it will fall. Your coin being flipped and choosing heads or tail is the foundation of cubism. You decide. Nobody else does. And this is proven by science. It's not, you know, hokey pokey stuff. It's science. And if you read, if you read the Bible, the Quran, the Torah, Buddhist scriptures, Indian scriptures, Hinduism, they say the same thing. They just don't use quantum mechanics and fancy math to tell you that. Hence, why psychological operations that are done by evil and by good, which are both bad, you should never, ever hijack. But when you know that The few have the power of a hand that's massive. It's like a basketball. Have you ever seen really tall people grab a basketball and they just like hold it and wave it around? You're like, how the hell? You know, my hand can't hold the ball like that and just suspend it and move it around and wave it around like nothing with one hand. I need two hands to hold on to that, right? So if someone has a bigger grip than another and you're just like, yo, that's not fair. You have a bigger hand than the other person. People then nudge, but this is it they know that people are innately good. They know that people innately love. They know the unconditional love that comes from people and they use that. This is why mankind has constantly been under psychological attack. Constantly. Constantly. Because they don't want you believing in anything. How dare you believe in a God of good? How dare you believe in the good of people? How dare you love people? People are bad. Here's what's good. Go buy that Gucci bag. Here's what's good. You need KKW's latest, you know, concealer and put much of it. That's love. That's beauty. No, it's not. No, it's not. And math is telling you that too. Quantum mechanics and physics are telling you that, too. The individuality and the ability to be subjective in love is their problem. Remember, duplicity is key for them. And they pander on that duplicity and your inability to understand the duplicity of man. So on that note, I want to wish you guys a fabulous weekend. And know that whatever it takes, (laughs) we're going to get it done. Adrenaline is the key here um, in many ways than one. So I'm going to bid you guys a great weekend. I will see you guys on Sunday for movie night. For those of you that are Twitch Prime, um, it's going to be a lot of fun. God bless everyone.
8: To prepare for these, dropping in the world could be danger race Everybody's circling as fultures, negative, nepotist Everybody's waiting for the fallen man Everybody's praying for the end of times
4: Everybody hoping they could be the one I was born to run